0: Our scripture passage this morning comes from Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 16, and we're going to take it down to chapter 23, verse 19. It's a longer passage than normal on this Sunday morning, but I think you can follow along. I would ask that you have your own Bibles kind of open out in front of you. We're going to be looking at this passage this morning, skipping around throughout the passage looking at various verses. Uh, It's only two pages in my Bible, so I thought I could read it all for us this morning. So let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's Word. Listen to God's Word. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right you shall not oppress a sojourner you shall know you know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of egypt for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its field but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard Six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Few times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are continuing through our exposition of Exodus. We have that habit here at our church. We just basically take a book of the Bible and we start in verse 1, chapter 1, and we kind of get through the end. We do preach verse by verse, and that means that we are... In this particular chapter that sometimes seems like an amalgamation of various laws and kind of random and very strange. uh, Maybe irrelevant and sometimes even in our Bible reading plans we probably want to read by it very quickly saying that's for Israel and not for me. But we'll see hopefully how helpful it is for us as we are thinking through some of these laws. And this morning we are in what's called the Book of the Covenant, as Albert mentioned earlier this morning. Uh, The Book of the Covenant is a series of laws, kind of an expression or an impression, an an outworking of the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel. This is the way in which the laws would be applied to the nation of Israel for their specific context and their specific time. Now if you look at the heading of our Bible passage this morning, it says laws about social justice, if you're in the ESV. That's what you have. You have a heading there that says laws about social justice. And those headings are not inspired, they're added for ease of reading. And these laws really are about compassion and looking out for the vulnerable, but they certainly have to do with justice on a broad scale. So that's what we're going to be talking about today social justice. Now, I don't have to tell you that the topic of social justice is a, I don't know, an age defining kind of controversy in our time. I don't know if it's controversial or not in in certain sectors, but the topic is everywhere. uh, Social justice is in our coffee shops, it's in our kindergarten curricula. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's everywhere in our news, and it's certainly made its way into pulpits. Some of us think social justice is an unmitigated good, while others are very suspicious of social justice. But in general, I think most people, uh, most people would consider themselves to be just people. I would say that most of us, when we think about justice, we want to say that we're just people, or we want justice to happen. Uh, We would never want people to have their rights trampled upon. Uh, We would want to look out, we want to at least think of ourselves as people who see the oppressed, people who have their rights trampled on, and want to correct it. Most people, we would say, are committed to justice. But there are some questions about that. First, how do you know what is really just? And what are you going to do about it, personally? Furthermore, do you even have the internal resources, the desires, the self-discipline to always do what is just? And can you meaningfully pursue justice for others if you have secret bitterness in your hearts or envy? Our passage this morning has a lot to say about that and i would say even that our passage is a recipe for how to live a just life Uh, there are two main ingredients that we see about how to live a just life it's not that hard because it's all flowing out from the ten commandments but two main ingredients for living a just life first faith in the only true god and second love of your neighbor Love of your neighbor. Let's take each of these in turn. First, faith in the only true God. The first and most important thing that God wants for every single human being is what? That they worship him alone. That's what God wants for every single human being. That's the beginning of Israel's duty and the beginning of ours. And if you look at our passage this morning, interspersed throughout it, seemingly, you know, every three verses, there's going to be something about Honoring God, not reviling him. There are going to be calls to fully follow him, to trust him completely. And so I want to take a look at some of those verses. And I've kind of lumped them into three broad categories. First, faith in God looks like devotion. Look at verses 18 and 20 in those verses, in, your, in chapter 22. There are three laws of four capital crimes, crimes deserving of death, practicing occult magic, bestiality, and polytheism. Now the problem with these practices is not because they are particularly heinous, which they are, but the greater offense is that these types of things attempt to supplant God they try to substitute something in place of God. So there's sorcery, which led people astray from placing their trust in God because you will look to a medium or a palm reader or some occult black magic person to try and understand the world, to try and understand your life, to to maybe get 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 an edge on your enemies or to find out hidden information. So it's going through horoscopes or whatever it might be, And it was turning people away from trusting the living God. Bestiality, having sexual relations with an animal, is a perversion of God's creation. But even more, this was sometimes a part of pagan worship practices. Thought to stimulate the gods and produce fertility. And of course, there's polytheism. And that's almost throughout chapter 22 and 23. The worship of other gods is forbidden. Verse 20 says, you shall not sacrifice to any God. Verse 31 says, you shall be consecrated, devoted to me. You skip down to chapter 23, verse 13. Someone said, this is a central verse here. Pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So as far as Moses is concerned, anything that threatens your soul deserved the death penalty because god does not want us to steer our devotion away from him he wants us to worship and trust him alone he wants us to to give our whole selves to him and not have any idols verse 19 is really caps off this whole idea of devotion to god now, verse 19 is one of those weird verses. It talks about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. It's one of those verses where we look at it and we say, this is why we think the Bible is weird. Uh, but the Bible actually mentions this particular law three times in the Old Testament, twice in Exodus, once in Deuteronomy. So there is something important about this. And you could probably go out and read a lot about this, but this verse is likely about devotion to God. Why? Because there's some evidence that this practice was common in Canaanite religions. Uh, they can find actual laws from Canaanite religions that say, boil goat in milk. Okay? And uh, so the idea here is that if you boiled a, your sacrifice in, to God, to this pagan god, in its mother's milk, it would produce more fertility. Um, You know, milk is reproduction, it's life, it's fertility, it has those ideas. So this is how you would stimulate your own flocks to reproduce or or the gods would see this and give blessings. And God is saying, stop all this nonsense. Stop all this superstition. Stop all these false gods. Be devoted fully to me. Second, faith in God looks like reverence. So verse 28, it says, you shall not revile God. I think that's the opposite of reverencing God, of honoring God. This has the idea of cursing or insulting. Reviling is cursing, insulting, or treating something as worthless. And verse 20 continues and says, nor curse a ruler of your people. So Moses is making a connection here. He's saying, when you curse or revile an authority figure, you are reviling him. Uh, in Acts 23, some of you might be familiar with that passage, Paul was arrested, and he had to stand court before the Sanhedrin, and Paul calls one of the priests a whitewashed wall. And someone tells Paul, the Apostle Paul, and says, don't you know that that was the high priest? And Paul says, Acts 23:5. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Do you ever wonder when Paul sinned after he came to know Christ? Acts 23, verse 5, you see it, right? Paul took this commandment very seriously. You don't curse a ruler of your people because it is tantamount to reviling God. Now, What might that look like in our society where we have freedom of speech and expressions and, you know, it seems like it's a fad to critique and criticize our leaders? Well, certainly there's a place for it. Certainly there's a place for us to disagree with our leaders, uh, to maybe even critique them sternly, but not to curse them, not to insult them, not to treat them with contempt. You know, sometimes we see who gets elected, and we're like, that's the last person who I want to be my, you know, we say, not my president, or whatever it might be. Or we say, not my governor, or the list goes on. Not my Supreme Court justice. Our rulers are still appointed by God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's because their, you know, God's favor is upon those people, especially uh, sometimes God appoints rulers for judgment. Sometimes God appoints rulers for prosperity. But God has put the ruler in his place so we don't revile the ruler without reviling God himself. And this idea of reverencing God is picked up in verse 29 of chapter 22. You don't delay from offering the fullness of your harvest and the outflow of your presses, your firstborn, your sons, your oxen, your sheep. All of it you shall give to God. We honor him. We revere him. We give him of our first fruits. We give God the best. We don't tell God that he can pick through the, gar- uh, the garage. I wanted to say garbage. The garage sales of our lives. Because garage sales are really garbage sales, aren't they? We know what a garage sale is like. You know, there's all these things that are old. That should probably be thrown away. And we have this wonderful idea that somehow we should just try to make a buck out of it and sell it. And we say, look, God, my garage sale. Why don't you pick out of it whatever you want? No, God is to be revered. He is to have it all. He is to have the best of our lives. We don't say, let's wait. Let's wait until I'm, I don't know, I'm, I, I go to, I'm a little bit older. or I get into college or I'm retired before I follow of you. Rather, we revere and reverence God We say all of it is yours. We honor him. Devotion, reverence, and third, we see worship. That's what it looks like to have faith in God. We see verses 10 through 18 about these laws about Sabbath and festivals. And there's laws about Sabbath rest we see here in the first couple of verses, both for you and for others. And what you're supposed to do is on the seventh year, you let your crops lie fallow so that Whatever grows during that seventh year is just for the animals of the earth and for the poor to glean from. Further, you take a weekly Sabbath, not only because you need a break, but because your animals and servants and your children need breaks. And the Sabbath is set aside for rest, uh, for the good of others, and for worship. Second, there's all these laws about festivals. You know, there's Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Harvest, and Feast of Ingathering. And what you need to understand is that they're about God redeeming his people. God providing for his people. And God's providence over his people. and Saying, you, you get my first fruits, and at the end of the season, I give another set, uh, I, I give another, there's another time to worship you. Because God is weaving himself into their weekly and annual and monthly and seasonal calendar of Israel because he says, I am central to your life. I am integral to your life. You are to give over your life in worship to me at all times, exclusive loyalty, total trust, and complete devotion. Devotion and reverence and worship. Now, what does any of that have to do with justice? Why does God interweave, seemingly, all these laws about worshiping him and loving others? Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the worship of God is the beginning of justice. You know, over the past several years, it seems like social justice, that topic has been a little bit of a jackhammer in the churches. Uh, it's, uh, It's reduced some to rubble. It's shaken some denominations. It's made old friends, split apart old friends. And we've come to a little bit of a standoff. Everyone's kind of in their corners now. And, uh, you know, this is my influencer and that's your influencer. And we're wary of one side versus the other. We're wary that one side is going to become just social justice warriors. Or others are... We're, we're worried that others are going to be hopelessly unsympathetic towards the vulnerable because they're so privileged. But the scriptures reveal a bedrock issue when it comes to social justice. It gets right to the bottom of it and it says the very first ingredient you must have is that you must have faith in the only true God. Why? Because to do justice is to give others their due. And God is the ultimate other. God is the ultimate other. True justice starts with giving God his due, worshiping The triune sovereign creator. uh, Paul tells us in Romans 1 why gruesome injustices occur. He doesn't settle for superficial critical theories. Why envy? Why murder? Why strife? Why conceit? Why maliciousness? Because they did not honor God or worship him, Romans 1. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You look deep enough under, under any horizontal human against human injustice and you will always find a vertical human against God injustice. A refusal to give the creator the worship he deserves because once you devalue God, you devalue those created in his image. And God tells us, only if he is your highest authority and greatest good will you have the resources you need to pursue justice for the oppressed and not become an oppressor yourself. You see what it says, this kind of refrain that happened twice in in chapter 22, verse 21. There's this almost a gospel motivation that we see here. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And the same thing in chapter 23, verse 9. In other words, only when you know the salvation of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and his compassion, will you become instruments of mercy and grace and compassion and justice to others. So do you want to pursue justice for others and be just for just yourself? then you must give God his due and trust him completely and love him wholeheartedly and worship him only. Second, two ingredients we talked about to living a just life. First was faith in the only true God. And second, very simple, love of your neighbor. And we see this throughout in these verses here in these two chapters. The clarion call in these verses is to do right to others, especially to the weak and the vulnerable. And what we have in these chapters are essentially five categories that he talks about. Five categories. And they're like the typical categories that we see in the Bible for those who are weak and those who are vulnerable. And I don't think the list changes much today. And we see in verses 16 and 17 that he talks about justice for women. Uh, you see, it says if a man seduces a virgin, so this isn't speaking about rape, which was punishable by death in Deuteronomy. It's talking about seduction and something consensual. And if this happens, a man has to pay a bride price. Uh, this might seem degrading to women, like as if they're property, like there's a bride price for them. Uh, but in fact, it honored the value of a woman. At First, it forced a man to make full and formal arrangement for a marriage. He had to show, I have the resources enough to take care of your daughter. I have the resources enough to take care of you, to bring you into my family. I'm prepared for that. And second, it ensured a, a kind of a family and formal negotiations. He was showing that something serious and important was at stake. So simply having sex with her, with or without her permission, devalued her, actually. It actually showed a blatant disregard for her worth. So the bride's price system was designed to make marriage harder to come by. It was to elevate the idea of marriage. And so what happens then? What happens when this man seduces this girl? Well, notice the Bible doesn't say that they are married or that they must be married. It simply says a, bro- a A bride price must be paid. You can't get out of it. And if the bride tells her father, look, this was a big mistake, I don't want to be with this guy, the Bible doesn't say that she has to compound that first mistake with making another mistake and to marry him. But either way, a bride price needed to be paid. You don't get out of it. Especially in that culture, it would have been more difficult for a woman to be married after she lost her virginity. So these were rules meant to protect women. Then we have justice for sojourners or foreigners residing with Israel. We see this in verse 21, chapter 22, 21, and, uh, and 29. You shall not oppress a sojourner. Now the word oppress is the, is the word literally meaning Squeeze. It comes to be applied to all forms of physical and psychological kind of oppression. And the Israelites knew what it was like to be foreigners in Egypt. And he says, you guys were squeezed to the max in Egypt. So don't do that when you come into the land. You don't return. You don't live that way. You're to treat sojourners with care and respect. Now, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word here talking about this sojourner refers to someone who is making a permanent residence in the land uh, by, uh, by permission uh, of the citizen host. So in other words, it speaks of someone from another place who enters into the country with permission to live, work, and exist in the country. So in other words, the assumption here is that laws are being kept. It's not that laws are being thrown out the window simply because they're sojourners. It's saying that we ought to be gracious, hospitable. Immigrants often lack the guarantees of citizenship and could be easily exploited and many of us understand that. Uh, some of you uh, are still on your green card. Uh, some of you are, are looking to get your green card and a lot of you are children from first generation immigrants and you saw firsthand how your parents scrimped and saved and struggled in a land not their own and as christians we know that america as christians we know that america is not our home and we are sojourners and exiles and we ought to welcome others so the bible does not tell us the number of refugees you must take in and the bible doesn't tell us if Or should we create pathways for citizenship for illegal immigrants? But one thing is clear. Christians are to love and seek justice for them. Having touched on compassion for women and sojourners, Moses moves on to widows and orphans. These are the quintessential examples of the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, Widows had very little little legal standing, and they couldn't get on with life unless they had a wealthy family uh, to lean on, but they were dependent on the kindness of others. And God issues a chilling warning. He says, don't oppress them. Look out for them. Don't mistreat them, because I will hear, and I will come to you, and you will face my wrath if you do. God defends the defenseless. God rescues those who have no one to rescue them. That's the kind of God he is. So you are to look out for the marginal and the weak and the disenfranchised. And then God also speaks about the poor. Look at chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to the poor, you're not to be a lender, money lender to him. In other words, you don't ex- exact this high interest. You don't Give out predatory loans to people who are in need. In fact, it says, God says, you don't even charge any interest at all if it's for the relief of poverty. The Bible says don't get rich off of other people's misfortunes. You ought to loan them that money free of charge or even just give it away to them. Now, verse 26 makes it even more clear when it it speaks of a cloak given in pledge because sometimes you would give this cloak as collateral. Uh, You're trying to get this loan, so you say, here is my cloak. And you can be so poor that you end up giving away an essential item. And it says, at night, give back the man his cloak because he's going to be cold. The picture is someone so poor, they're literally giving the shirts off their back and he's saying, No, you're not to try to get rich off his poverty or to make him suffer more because of it. And God says, I will hear, I am compassionate. In chapter 23, we move from the streets to the courtroom and it says, you shall not spread a a false report or join hands with wicked men to be a malicious witness. You don't fall in with the many to do evil. Uh, The understanding here is absolute honesty. Absolute honesty. Uh, You don't collude with others to do wrong. You don't follow the crowd when they are bent on doing evil. Christians are to stand up against mob rule. Christians are to stand up against the will of the majority when it's wrong. Don't join in with others out of fear of of looking foolish or being labeled as someone on the wrong side of history, or being canceled. You act righteously when everyone else has already condemned that person in a trial by Twitter. And you see what it says in verse 3. It says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There's a phrase that is often used that says God sides with the poor. Uh, yes, he hears the cries of those who are vulnerable and weak. But it says in verse 3 that you are not partial to a poor man in a lawsuit. And then you skip down to verse 6, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So basically, it's saying, You don't so sympathize with the suffering that you that you're unjust. And you don't, and you also have to watch out that you do not deny justice to the poor because they often lack the resources to get justice for themselves. You have no favoritism to show no partiality. One last category, one last category as we are starting to wrap up here. Verses 4 and 5 you do justice to your enemies. You see that if if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This is the Old Testament version of loving your enemies. You don't have to wait till Jesus to get there. Before there was the parable of the Good Samaritan, there is the book of the covenant right here. One commentator notes, uh, Victor Hamilton, he writes, It is one thing to ask God to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He's quoting Psalm 23 there. It is another thing to ask God to give you enough grace to prepare a table for your enemies. So what we see in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 23 is that God is not asking his people just to be civil with their enemies. You're asked to love them to actively look for opportunities to express love for them. Because God's standard is not tolerance. That's too low. God's standard is love. In these two chapters, God gives us categories for the weak, the vulnerable, and the helpless. And he's calling us people to look out, especially for those who are having a hard time in life. Hard time making it. And I want you, I just want to let you know that if you have compassion for people who have a hard time making it, that doesn't make you a liberal. That just makes you a Christian. Many conservative, Bible believing, reformed churches, talking about ourselves right now, are wary about social justice. Perhaps the worst thing you can call members of that church is what? Woke. Now, certainly, there's a concern to not become a social gospel church where we are only caring about social justice. The dangers are there because we can lose focus and become apathetic about telling others the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection while ever zealous to win and convert others to our justice causes. We can be so focused on people's earthly good that we do not care about their eternal good. We can become more obsessed with slaying systems of oppression than sin in our own hearts. We can align ourselves with ideologies that are antithetical, that compromise biblical truth. We can link arms with organizations whose stated mission is to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. They wanna blow up the family. In other words, we can become ensnared in a social justice that conflicts with a biblical view of reality. And so we must make sure that we are preaching the gospel. We must make sure that our theology is correct That's good and necessary, but it should not be at the expense of helping the vulnerable and the needy. Because seek justice is a clarion call of the scriptures. It is unavoidable. Loving our neighbors is not an option for those who are in Christ. Good theology and social activism are not mutually exclusive. God is the compassionate God, the strong one who became supremely weak so that he could save those who could not save themselves. So if you are living your whole life and you're saying, well, I'm not into those social justice causes. I'll just let other people do that. I'm I'm not really kind of interested in helping the vulnerable or the widows and orphans. That can be someone else's thing, but it's not my thing. Then you don't understand who you are and what God is like. Because you and me, we were helpless. We were weak. We were vulnerable. We are sinners deserving of hell and wrath. But God sent His Son from the splendor of heaven. He who was rich for our sakes became poor that we might become rich. He saved us when we could not save ourselves. It was his kindness. It was his compassion. It was his mercy. It was his love. It was his grace that any of us repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. So do you want to be just? Do you want to be just? Worship God. Have faith in the only true God. And love others. And love others as God has loved you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us and that your word would be searching our hearts to see all the different ways in which we have been selfish and curved in upon ourselves. So, Father, give us a fresh view once again of the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ upon us, upon our hearts, upon our lives, and how that has transformed us. Let us never grow jaded with the gospel. And may that change us to be kind and compassionate as you are kind and compassionate, patient, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.